morning, Grace Baptist. Words fail me to express what a joy it has been to get to spend the weekend uh, with the, the families that were represented at the Family Summit, or to express what an honor it is to stand behind this sacred desk. I know the men who have shared during Family Summits in the past, some of them are some of my favorite people and closest friends at Boys College and Southern Seminary. Um, so it is a treasure for me to, to be here today. Uh, I love your pastor. Um, to Pastor Bill and his bride, Retta, they have been such an encouragement. Uh, at times, pastors just getting in a car and driving to have lunch uh, with a young man who's struggling to finish his Ph.D. at, Boys College, at uh, Southern Seminary and uh, teaching adjunct classes. Uh, pastor, I just want to thank you for your love to the Carter family. My first connection to Grace Baptist was getting to uh, cheer on and call out Chloe West's name as she was competing in volleyball tournaments uh, with my daughter and Michael and his bride Jamie. We quickly became close friends. And uh, to Pastor Todd and his bride Stephanie, Pastor Ricky and Tanya. Church, I hope you appreciate um, how special it is that all of your pastors were represented this weekend to invest in their covenant promise to their brides. There is nothing more devastating to a church than when a marriage fails among one of their pastors. Uh, having lived through that personally, I can tell you. And so I just commend you brothers for uh, loving your sheep well by being present this weekend. Uh, to my mom and dad who are seated here, I've had the joy of preaching in my dad's home church in Harlan County. Uh, I've had the joy of preaching to my mom's church in Soane's Chapel, Mississippi. Um, but this is probably the greatest joy to get to preach with them in the church where they have covenanted in church membership. And um, in just a few weeks, they will be married 50 years. Um, so we want to celebrate that. And to them, I just want to say, uh, hear your Lord say, well done, good and faithful servants, as you sit next to my bride and your granddaughter. Um, we give thanks and praise for uh, you sticking it out these 50 years and loving each other well. So it's a joy to be here, church family. We're going to go running quickly to God's Word. Pastor Bill has told me keep it right at 55 minutes, so I'm going to try and honor that request this morning. And uh, we, will, we will see what the Lord has to say about marriage this morning. Father, we thank you for this day. We give you praise for another day of life, putting breath in our lungs, waking us up, and sending us on our way. How good it is to be together with the saints in the house of the Lord this morning. Father, we come to you, those who are married, Lord, those who are single. We come to you for wisdom and grace. Redeeming love has been our theme, Lord, and it shall be till we die. Father, give us wisdom from your word this morning, and we will give you praise. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I think most of us, perhaps, all of us this morning would say that there are moments in our lives when God's voice is so sweetly unmistakable. His direction, his guidance, his presence, it's so clear. Moments when we look back and see that there was absolutely 0% confusion or anxiety or fear regarding the next step that we needed to take in school, the next step that we needed to take in our vocation, the next step that we needed to take in our relationship or in marriage our next step that we needed to take spiritually because God was so graciously present and evident and speaking clear to us in our lives. These are the, the sweet, sweet moments when 
the gates of hell and all those Ephesians 6 demons could come against us, and it would not in any way slow us down for a second. Because God's will and God's presence for that season was so abundantly clear. Can you think of a few moments in your life when life was like that? Let me give you a few of mine. October 1985, Pastor Bill's preaching somewhere in Stone Mountain, Georgia. And God graciously makes it unmistakably clear to my little eight-year-old heart, growing up at Dunwoody Baptist, that I was a depraved Sinner, a little rebel before my parents and before a holy and righteous God. And apart from the confession of my sin and repentance and receiving Jesus' free gift of eternal life, I would remain eternally divided from my heavenly Father. I didn't need a small group to encourage me. I didn't need wise counsel. I didn't need a sign for the Lord. I didn't need something written in the stars. I didn't need a book study. I didn't need a spiritual retreat to know what I needed to do next because God's presence was so evident and clear. Confession, repentance, baptism, church membership, Jimmy Go Make Disciples, 1985 was such a sweet season of God's clear direction in my life. Here's another, May of 1993 and my transition from Atlanta to Lexington, Kentucky. June 5th, 1999 and my covenant promise to then Carrie Ann Sparrow, October of 2000, uh, my transition out of physical therapy, which I had been working for about eight years at UK to accomplish, and into full-time ministry. Mom and Dad, please continue paying those student loans. I'm going to go be a youth minister now. October of 2009, my transition back into physical therapy to serve bivocationally on the church planning team at Mosaic Lexington. Beloved, sweet, sweet, sweet seasons where there was no doubt, no fear, no concern, Everything was in the right place. I knew that I was right with the right people doing the right things because God's presence was so clear. Can we, can we just agree this morning that these are the awesome moments in our lives when all, God all but sends us the email from heaven telling us where we need to go and what we need to do. And can we also just agree that life, especially marriage, isn't always like that. In fact, life in a fallen world is seldom like that. One famous doctor put it this way when life can be so confusing. You'll come to a place where the streets are not marked. Some windows are lighted, but mostly they're dark. You can get so confused that you'll start into race down long-wiggled roads at breaknecking pace. And grind on for miles, cross weirdish wild space, headed, I fear, for the most useless place, the waiting place, for people who are just waiting, waiting for the fish to bite, or waiting for the wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for a Friday night, or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. Now, I don't know if Dr. Seuss had Peter, James, and John in mind when he was describing the waiting place, but that is exactly where Jesus' friends find themselves in John 21. 
Oh, the places the disciples thought they would go with the resurrected Lord. Just one chapter ago, life was exciting. Life was singing. Jesus was alive. Yes, he had been crucified. But the third day had come. The stone had been rolled away. Jesus had defeated death. It was so much for them to take in. Thomas demanded to see the scars. But after appearing to Mary in the garden, the resurrected Lord returned to his friends to comfort them. In John 20, Jesus breathed on them. He commissioned them. He told them, brothers, meet me in Galilee. It was time to get back to fishing. Fishing for men and women. Time to get back to signs and wonders. Time to get back for the kingdom coming down. They were on their way up. They were seeing great sights. They were joining high flyers. They were off to great heights. But that was yesterday. And they had made the journey to Galilee. They had followed the Lord's instructions. He never showed up. He wasn't there. God's voice had grown quiet. His presence had grown distant. And it's unclear for the disciples what they should do next. And so they do the only thing that they can. They wait. The title of this morning's message is Trust Jesus in the Waiting Place. And some of our beloved brothers and sisters, some of those who are married this morning, find yourself in the waiting place. That's where Carrie and I find ourselves waiting. It doesn't really matter how we get there. Some of us find ourselves in the waiting place as a result of our sin, Sinful thinking, sinful desires, sinful commitments that have led us into a season where all we can do right now is just wait. Some of us find ourselves in the waiting place because the sin that we've received and suffered from other people towards us, something someone did, something someone said that was out of our control, that has created a season where all we can do in life and maybe in marriage is just wait. And some of us make our way into the waiting place in the same way that Jesus found himself in the wilderness, in the same way that the disciples find themselves in a fishing boat. They were led there by the Holy Spirit. And regardless of how we get there, what we do in the waiting place, beloved, it has eternal consequences. So whether by sin or by suffering or by the Holy Spirit's direction, when we find ourselves in the waiting place, our good and sovereign Father has either allowed it or he has directed it. And so it is good and it is right for us to ask, Jesus, how can I trust you in my life and in my marriage when all I can do is wait? Here's the first word that John has for us in the waiting place as we look at his gospel. Point number one, believe that Jesus is always near in the waiting place. Believe that Jesus is always near in the waiting place. Starting in verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. That's all I know to do. They said to him, well, we will go with you. Then they went out and they got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. This already sounds like all the fishing trips that dad and I have ever been on in Lake Cumberland. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Think think with me about the current circumstances that we find the disciples in. One, they're confused. 
Jesus told them to meet in Galilee. They followed his instructions. They're obedient. They went to Galilee, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. They're probably growing hungry. They've probably burned through whatever ministry expense money they had left, and they do the only thing they know to do. They go fishing. They set out in the evening when fish typically become active, but now it's five or six in the morning. It's dark. It's probably getting cool on the water, and now not only are they hungry, but they're physically exhausted, confused, hungry, exhausted, unable to really see anything around them. Welcome to life in the waiting place. Now, I want you to think with me just for a moment of all the different kinds of stories the disciples could begin rehearsing in their heart about their current circumstances. I would imagine Peter or James or John begin thinking on this story. You know, maybe what we experienced with Jesus was not real. Maybe we made ourselves believe something that was just fictitious. Maybe it was wishful thinking. Maybe it was emotionalism. But maybe what we thought was God, what we thought was divine, wasn't really God after all. And how foolish we are for believing that it was real. Maybe that's what they begin rehearsing. Here's another thought. Maybe we did something wrong. See, if I'm Peter, this this is where I'm going in my heart. My sin, my mistake, my betrayal. Jesus didn't really forgive me. Maybe the other ten guys here in the boat. But not my sin. Guys, I'm probably like Jonah. You throw me over and things will probably get better for you. Here's a message they might begin rehearsing in the waiting place. Things are never going to change. In my life, in my marriage, this fear, this exhaustion, this confusion, this fruitless labor, all night long, it's always going to be like this. Maybe one more. You know, Jesus probably isn't coming. He's probably forgotten about us, or he found others more important, more worthy than the likes of us. There's probably no point in us living by his words now. It's all up to us because he's not coming. I would say these are probably the internal conversations that the disciples begin having and that we begin having in our life and in our marriage when we find ourselves in the waiting place. And while God doesn't always speak clearly in the waiting place, there is someone who has no problem at all utilizing his voice when we grow tired, hungry, confused, and lonely. One of these exhausted fishermen in the boat will eventually remind us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. So when does the devil come to seek us, beloved? Well, it's not on the mountaintop. It's not on the mission trip. It's not in the home group fellowship Bible study. It's not on the Lord's Day. It's not when God's voice is unmistakably clear. The evil one comes to us in the waiting place. And scripture refers to him as the father of lies. And I would say that the central lie, if you could peel back all the layers of deception, the central lie that Satan is trying to plant in your marriage and in your life in the waiting place is this. You're alone. You are on your own. God is not there. And I believe this is the central lie that the enemy brings to us in the waiting place 
Because the central promise from our Savior, the central promise that Jesus gave to his disciples, and the central promise that Jesus gives to you this morning, no matter where you are in marriage, no matter where you are in singleness, is this. John 14, 18, where Jesus says, I promise that I will never leave you helpless. I will never abandon you as orphans. So friends, it should come as no surprise that when you find yourself in the waiting place, tired, exhausted, lonely, and confused, that the number one project from the evil one is to try and convince you that you have been abandoned by God. So what is it that Jesus wants for you as you sit there waiting for the fish to bite or a pair of pants or a wig with curls or another chance? God wants you to believe, regardless of your circumstances, that Jesus is always, always, always near you. Don't forget Jesus' words to Thomas in John 20. Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen. Blessed are those who can't see me in the waiting place. Blessed are those who are in a place in their marriage. They cannot, they cannot sense my presence, and yet they hold to the belief that I am near them. Blessed are those who cling to the belief that I am always near, especially when the circumstances of life make it difficult to trace my presence. Beloved, the disciples are tired, they're hungry, they're confused, and they're tempted to believe that Jesus has abandoned them, and to make matters worse, some guy on the shore is now calling to them for a fishing report. Jesus said to them in verse 5 from the shore, Children, do you have any fish? You see like the two disciples in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, the confusion of the disciples' current circumstances make it too difficult to see that Jesus has been there with them in the waiting place all along. So friends, believe that Jesus is always near you in the waiting place. Well, how do we do that? Well, perhaps one point of application before moving on. Faithfulness in the waiting place begins, I believe, by first stopping and taking note of what your heart has begun telling itself. Maybe you've been telling yourself the same things that the disciples were probably tempted to believe there in the boat alone without Christ. What I experienced with God in my former, it just wasn't real. Yes, there was a time that I was on fire, but maybe that was just emotionalism. Maybe what I thought was divine, maybe what I thought was eternal was just something that I was making up in my head. Or maybe like Peter, you think that your sins have disqualified you from God's grace. My sin, my mistake, my betrayal, Jesus couldn't truly forgive me. I'm the reason that we're here in this boat. I'm the reason that we're here in this place waiting in our marriage. And if I throw myself over like Jonah, then maybe things will just get better for the people around me. Or maybe you've started rehearsing this lie. Things are never going to change. It's always going to be like this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we take these arguments. We take this deception from the enemy and we demolish them. Every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So I think the first thing that 
Jesus has for us this morning in our marriage, believe that he is always near. Even in the moments in life where we can't see what's going on around us, we can't sense his presence, and all we can do is wait. Here's the second point that I see in the text, and it's very profound. It comes with an incredible amount of theological depth. Required me nearly completing a PhD to bring this to you. Point number two, help someone else while you're waiting. And what I mean by that is help someone else while you're waiting. Here's the ugly truth about life in the waiting place, especially in marriage. It breeds self-centeredness. If you let the waiting place, it will convince you that you are the only person with these kinds of problems in the world. You're the only person dealing with this level of disappointment or complexity or discouragement or guilt or financial strain or physical pain. You're the only one. In 2006, the church that I served had been serving at for six years with my bride. We just grew up together. The church started at 100-ish. In six years, it had grown to a little over 1,000. Nine kids that we started with in our student ministry had become 130. But in 2006, as we opened this brand new, beautiful $4 million children's facility, in the other part of the the church wing, we were all watching a video of our pastor and our worship leader confess their affair together. The entire congregation was in shock. It put us in dire financial trouble for a financial campaign that we were in the midst of. Marriages were failing left and right as a result. People were leaving the church. It was the ultimate waiting place. Daily closed-door meetings, confusion, felt like walking through peanut butter just to get up and go through the daily activities of ministry. And the longer I stayed in the waiting place, the more I began to focus on myself, my future, my desires, my concerns. Beloved, there was an entire congregation that I had grown up with for the better part of a decade that would have gladly, at any point, Enjoyed my prayers, my counsel, my love, my affirmation, my encouragement. But I allowed the waiting place to conform my heart towards self-centeredness. And I probably believe the lies that maybe some of you say to yourself, oh, I'm just too broken to be of any good to anyone else. Maybe that's the lie that you're holding on to this morning. I'm sure that's what Peter would have been... Tempted to believe in the boat after betraying Jesus three times, Peter most likely felt he had entered into some kind of special category of sinner. There's like the normal sinners, then there's four feet of dirt, and then there's me. Now Jesus seeks to restore Peter, and in doing so, he recreates this this magical fishing moment, this supernatural catching of the fish the disciples cast their nets to the other side of the boats their nets are full with fish it's all coming back to Peter in this moment and in verse 15 Jesus informs to us when they had finished breakfast Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of John do you love me more than these he said to him yes Lord you know that I love you he said to them well then help someone else feed my lambs He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, then tend to my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He's thinking back to the way that 
using profanity in the presence of a teenage girl, he denied Jesus three times during his suffering. Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Beloved, when you find yourself in the waiting place, in life, and in marriage, a war will begin to wage against you from the gates of hell. And one of the major tactics in that warfare is to form you into a self-consumed, self-focused, self-centered, isolated victim. That's the enemy's plan. And if Satan can begin to steer you down that path, he will own you. And you will spend the rest of your days in a prison of self-centeredness. Jesus asks you right now for some in the waiting place, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And if the answer is, yes, Lord, you know I love you, then hear your master's reply to you, dear brother, dear sister, in the waiting place. Go find someone to help. You can pray. You can cook. You can encourage. You can rock a baby. You can visit them in the nursing home and congratulate them on an amazing accomplishment of being married in the sixth decade of life. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. In other words, help someone, particularly in the family of God. Jesus calls to us in the waiting place, do you love me? If so, find someone to help. Believe that Jesus is always with you in the waiting place. Help someone else while you're waiting. Here's the third thing that I think the Lord has for us this morning. Husbands, wives, when you find yourself in the waiting place, confused, exhausted, fearful that things are never going to change, stop comparing your life and your marriage to other people. After calling to Peter in the waiting place and commanding him to help others out of his love for Christ, after Jesus jars Peter out of his self-centeredness and his self-consumption, he now gives Peter a glimpse of future things to come where God's call on Peter's life will eventually take him. You want to know the places that we'll go? Here are the places that we're going to go. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. Peter, your life was once your own, but now it belongs to me. I just purchased it on a bloody cross. It's been purchased with my blood shed for your redemption and your reward for your loving submission and your service to me, Peter, you're going to die and your death is going to make much of your father's name. Oh, the places you will go, Peter. See, friends, this is the problem with the health and wealth, prosperity, your best life is now gospel. There's just no place for a text like this in that form of theology and doctrine. Peter's going to answer Jesus' call to follow him, and it's going to cost him everything. So why are we so 
surprised. Let me just preach to myself this morning. Why am I so surprised when my obedience to Christ sometimes brings about a greater measure of suffering for me? No student is greater than his teacher or his master. Why are we so shocked when our obedience seems to conflict with the desires of our flesh? I'm sure that Jesus' words to Peter probably didn't line up with his 10-year ministry plan, the things that he was hoping and dreaming for his life. And what does he do? This reminds me so much of me. He looks around at the other dudes coming off the boat saying, what about these guys? They're going to die too? Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one whom had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? This is John's just kind of fancy way of writing his name into the text. Verse 21, when Peter saw him, when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, what about this man? What about his marriage? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come back, if it's my will that John lives, what is that to you? You follow me. Beloved, the waiting place has a way of promoting the comparison of our lives and our marriage to others. When you're waiting, you have a lot of time to sit around and think about how other marriages and other people are so much better off than ours. And I just am convinced that we are never more like Adam and Eve in their original sin when we begin comparing our lives to others, convinced that God has somehow held out on us. The thing that drives the comparing of ourselves to others is the idea that God's holding back. He's got good things for other people, but not for us. This is the lie that Satan used to bring down our first parents. And it's the lie that Satan is using to keep of us locked away in a prison of self-centered comparison with others. Comparing possessions, comparing relationships, comparing intimacy, comparing children, comparing bank accounts, comparing talents, comparing education, comparing body size, comparing the outward appearance. I mean, friends, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, none of these would work if the human heart wasn't such a sucker for the sin of comparing our lives with other people. And the scriptures remind us that our Savior is full of grace and full of truth. His grace pursues us in the waiting place. I think there's so much grace in, in Jesus cooking breakfast for Peter and affirming his love for him three times. That is so gracious. That is so kind. He provides good food for us as we eat and drink on his flesh that restores us in his righteousness. His grace tenderly affirms and assures us that there is no special category of sinner, that we are firmly in his grip of love. But then comes his truth that commands us to take our eyes off ourselves, to quit comparing ourselves with others, to help others, to demonstrate that our love for the Lamb of God is sincere by feeding his sheep, by tending to his lambs. And his truth commands us to abandon the program of having our head on a swivel to see if we're better off or worse off than the image bearer next to us. Jesus says to us through John's gospel, 
What is it to you, my child? What is it to you, Jimmy? If this is my will for this brother or that brother, stop comparing yourself and abide in me and follow me. The waiting place. Waiting perhaps for your Uncle Jake, a pot to boil or a better break, a string of pearls or a pair of pants, a wig with curls or a second chance. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you find yourself in the waiting place. And if not, just wait. Because the day is coming where all you can do is wait. Dr. Seuss is right about a lot of things. The one thing he got wrong, the waiting place is not the most useless place. In the hands of our Savior, in fact, the waiting place can be the most fruitful place. And in that place of waiting, Jesus calls to you this morning, first and foremost, to please him by believing and clinging to your conviction that though you can't see him, you can't smell him, you can't sense his presence, life is confusing, cold, and dark, much like our brothers in the boat, that regardless of your circumstances, you know his promise is true. He's there. He's always near. And hear his call to prove that your love for him is true, that as you're waiting, you'll add to his joy by finding another brother or sister to help in the waiting place. And finally, hear your master say, complete my joy. Compare not your lives, your marriage, your singleness to those around you. And in doing these things, your God will have accomplished his purpose for leading and directing you into the waiting place. For when the waiting is over, and we once again enter into one of those sweet seasons where his voice is so clear and his direction is so direct, you will have left the waiting place with a greater love for Jesus and a greater likeness to our Lord. Father, we thank you that though marriage is 